Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7. And as we like to say on Poets and Writers, we write poems in our hearts every day, but we're often afraid to share them. Well, we got a treat for you today. I'm down here at the uh, Black Theater Arts Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You've heard my show before when I've covered it here. We've got two very interesting personalities here today for you. And I first want to introduce Janet Cohen. Janet, as we like to ask around these mountains, where are you from? Well, I'm from the Valley. All right. Out in the great state of Indiana. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's kind of flat corn country. And I remember the first time I saw your beautiful mountains. We were driving through them, and they took my breath away. Absolutely. And then meeting the lovely people, because my grandparents are mountain people from Tennessee. Sure. So, Around Middle Tennessee, and you, you came on up to East Tennessee. Yeah, we they, talked were, they were earlier. East Tennessee. Yes. They were in Nashville. Then they moved over to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and Glasgow. And then they moved up through the Great Migration of African Americans up to Indiana. And then some went to Detroit for the, the car industry. And so I, I'm a Midwestern girl, but I love the mountains. Oh, Jana, what brings you to the Black Theater Arts Festival here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Well, I'm delighted to be back here in Winston-Salem. I hadn't been here since 1962. I was invited by the festival to present my play, Anne and Emmett. Anne and Emmett uh, is an imaginary conversation I had in my memory about two teens who actually lived and who were murdered, who lived in societies that couldn't protect them. Most everyone is familiar with Anne Frank, the young Jewish girl who perished near Hitler's Holocaust or in Hitler's Holocaust. And then there's Emmett Till, who was brutally murdered in Money, Mississippi in 1955 for whistling at a white woman. So those two stories came out of my memory, out of my consciousness, and onto the page, and then onto the stage as a cautionary tale that hate still lives. Racism and anti-Semitism still lives, and it still kills. And it also tells the story of how we all must come together and act. It's a call to action. Uh, things are still happening that are reprehensible, that kill young people. I think of the children in Syria, all the refugees, or the innocent children in Africa. Through, their no, through no fault of their own, they, they wither and die or murdered or exploited. So this is a story that tells what man's inhumanity can do, but through their stories, there's hope. And Frank and Emmett Till, and that will be on tonight here at the uh, Arts at the Festival. Festival. Well, now you've written other books too, right? You wrote another I, book I, before yes, that. I, I, this is the first so-called nonfiction. Even though it's based on fact, there are mm -hmm. two historic figures that actually lived, and their parents, and the perpetrator of Emmett's death. But I've written my autobiography. It's called From Rage to Reason, My Life in Two Americas. And I was, as I was writing my book, I was talking to a friend about writing the book, and she was curious about the title. She said, what's the rage you're about? And I said, the rage is growing up as an African-American in America in an apartheid nation, Jim Crow, segregated nation, uh, having a cousin who was lynched, having a mentor, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. was my mentor, 
having him assassinated, those things shaped me. Emmett's death early on at 14, he and I the same age, and then later, uh, at 26 years old, I have a friend who's assassinated, Martin, Martin King. So it's about that. That's what creates the rage, the segregation, the oppression, the hatred, the lynchings. Mm -hmm. And then she said, well, what two Americas are you talking about? And I said, growing up in apartheid America and growing up in the America of promise. And so she said, oh, Janet, you're successful. You're married to the Secretary of Defense. It would be unbecoming of you to bring all that up again. And I thought, it's unbecoming to have been victimized by racial hatred. It's unbecoming to talk about slavery, 300 years of ancestors who've given free labor to build not only this nation, but all of Europe during that time. And I didn't want to be a skunk at the garden party, so I held my tongue. Because I realized she didn't mean any harm. I had studied her history. I knew all about Napoleon and Alexander the Great mm -hmm. and Catherine the Great. I knew about that. She had not studied anything about my history, her own history. My history is her history. This is America. She was an American. She could write a book about her life and never mention the Civil War, never mention Abraham Lincoln, never mention slavery, never mention any of those things that have shaped me and who I am today. And she wouldn't understand. So I came home, and it was still raging. And I told Bill, my husband, and I said, can you imagine somebody saying that it would be, I would, I'm acting like I'm playing the victim by telling my story? And he said, well, go write something. And I took out my little Blackberry. I'm not very good at cursive. Mm -hmm. Better on the Blackberry. I'm all thumbs, as they say. And I start writing, and I thought, what would Anne Frank have said to Emma Till? She would have understood. And there's a story. And as and it that's unfolded, why we're, that's why we're here at the uh, festival yeah. here in Winston Salem, North Carolina, today. And you're listening to WEHC Poets and Writers coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. And we have, as I said, some very fascinating personalities on today. Janet Cohen and William Cohen, or Bill Cohen. In your middle, uh, you use the, you use your. Uh, yeah, we women, you know, we have several uh, names. <laughs> it's Janet Langhart Cohen, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm I'm delighted to be married to William Sebastian. All right, all right, and he is a poet. I understand in his own right, as we say, and has written some poetry. And we get poems from all around the uh, country, actually, on this show. So William Cohen, I'm going to switch over to him. And thank you so much, Janet Cohen. We'll My come pleasure. back to you, okay? I'm just having a ball. Every year, you guys, every two years, you guys hear from me down here. And it's just one great time. It really is. So William Cohen, welcome to Poets and Writers. Oh, great to be with you. Well, and as we like to ask, where are you from? I am from the great state of Maine. My hometown is Bangor, Maine. Grew up in Maine, went to school and college in Maine, and then went on to Boston uh, to go to law school. Well, you know, my dad was from the streets of Boston, as he liked to say, and he met my mother at a train station down here in Johnson City, Tennessee. So 
and she was off of Roan Mountain. So I'll just share that with you. So I'm a little bit of a Yankee, too. And you've had uh, several interesting jobs, and I remember seeing you. I saw you here today, and someone, I said, who is that fellow? His face is familiar. And and the fellow said, oh, it's some actor. I don't know who he is. But will you uh, talk a little bit about your work and then your poetry? And how you guys met, too. But first of all, you worked for Bill Clinton as Secretary of Defense. I right? did. Yeah. Uh, prior to that time, I was a U.S. congressman going too many years ago uh, from 1973 to 1979. I was a congressman. And then I was elected to the Senate, served in the Senate until 96 and uh, then went to the Pentagon from 97 to 2001. So going from, I was a mayor of my hometown uh, many years ago, and I started from being mayor to uh, congressman to senator to secretary of defense. We certainly led an interesting life. And where did you and Janet meet? Uh, on a, at a television station. She was co-hosting a very popular regional New England show and I was coming back from Washington, heading up to Maine, and it was during the uh, impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon. I happened to be on the uh, House Judiciary Committee at the time, and so I was encouraged to stop and do this radio interview, a television interview, I'm sorry, at this very popular uh, regional uh, station that reached into Maine and all of New England, uh, WCBB in Boston. And uh, Happened to have a very severe head cold that day that I stopped by. The doctor had warned me not to be traveling uh, because it was so severe, but I had to get back to my constituents explaining what I was doing. So I stopped off at this radio station, and I bent over a water cooler and trying to get some water before going on television. And just as I lifted up my head, I had to blow my nose. I looked up, and she was standing next to me. So that's where I first met her, and she fell immediately in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, listeners out there, they're both a striking couple. They really are. And so that's how you met. That's how we met. And then I remember you guys got married. It was quite a public, uh, big publicity. I remember watching it. Was. it. We um, didn't get married until years later. Uh, we got married in 96, um, and it was at, we were married in the uh, United States Senate in the Capitol. And that was uh, at uh, Janet's request. Uh, we wanted to have a very small wedding in the uh, chapel in the uh, Capitol because that Capitol was built by uh, Janet's ancestors. And it would mean uh, something quite symbolic, uh, certainly to her. Uh, and uh, I wanted to make, uh, make that happen. So we tried to have it in the chapel. Then word got out, and you're going to have about six or eight people, very small chapel. Word got out that we were getting married, and we looked for bigger places. Mark Hatfield, senator from um, Oregon, sure. said, well, I'll, I'll make my uh, appropriations committee. That wasn't big enough, and we ended up in the, uh, the Mansfield room uh, just off the Senate floor. And uh, it was a pretty big deal. A lot of people, uh, national coverage from all of the networks, and uh, uh, importantly, Strom Thurmond. Uh, was there to uh, greet Janet as she walked uh, through uh, in her bridal gown uh, as such, and uh, he was the first one to see her. And uh, uh, Yes, well, Strom, you know, we know a little something about him in the South, and of course, you know, he, he had a daughter and so on later. You that know, we didn't... I, may I just say on this, Henry, as Bill's talking about our wedding day, uh, that really does take me down memory lane, kind of a sentimental journey. I had heard of Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats and segregation now and segregation forever, and that would just send a cold chill through my family and our neighborhood. 
when we'd hear him speak on TV, the radio. I got to meet him in his later years uh, when he served with Bill, or Bill served with him uh, in the Senate. At that time, he was the longest-serving senator, Senator Pro Temp, is that what it's called? Uh, he would always flirt with the girls. He was like 80s, 90s-year-old. <laughs> We, we thought he was safe, yeah. but he was charming. Yeah. You know, the juxtaposition of having a man who would say that and hear that in my youth and then get to know him in my adult life, get to know him, see him, be with him. And I asked him to come to our wedding. And he said, oh, no, no, no. And I said, please come. You know, it's protocol. You should be there. It's in the Senate. As they opened the door for me to walk down the aisle, I thought of my father, I don't have a father to take me down the aisle. But the first face I saw was Senator Strom Thurmond. <laughs> and he was looking at me like he'd never looked at me before sure. because he'd always you know, been kidding us before. He had a very serious, somber look on his face. And I, said, I thought to myself, I told him when he came to sit up front, he's in the back row. And then I go up and I see Bill and his blue eyes are glistening and it was, it's our wedding day. And when we got home that night, we talked about, you know, what the night was like for us. And I said, Bill, Senator Strom Thurmond looked at me like I would have wanted my father to look at me. And later on, I found out that he had a black daughter. Absolutely. And I thought, I bet while I was yeah. thinking about my father... Yeah. He, looking at me, was thinking about his black daughter. And he had met with her and he supplied supported her, with, and he supported was, he her, her and so on. And, her, and yeah. you know, those of us growing up in the South during civil rights, we were overwhelmed by this information. You I were? Can How did you, you feel about it? Well, but because we were seeing here is a person who has taken on racial, uh, a racial attitude. Mm -hmm. And here in his background is this personal background of humanity. You know, and how did you as a I, white person? I'll tell you how people, I how did, did was I'll tell you how I reconciled it. I thought, and myself, and of course, I was a mountain person. My mother came from the mountains, mm -hmm. and see, if you are familiar with Mitchell County, which mm -hmm. you aren't, that's the Roan Mountain of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They like to say they sit, shot both sides, but mm -hmm. see, they were pro-union. Mm -hmm. But that's an interesting story in itself. It was like the Hatfields they didn't and McCoys. Have, well, kind of yeah, but they didn't have slaves, mm -hmm. and they lived off the land, right. and so. But what it did to me was it showed the humanity in all of us. And if we could just simply have the time or the opportunity, what is this that we transfer into politics and into every other area because of our life? Because it works. They weaponize fear and difference and use it to get what they want. But, but the curious thing is, I've often heard, because I grew up in the north or up south in Indiana is what we call it, white people in the south don't care how close black people get to them. You know, we, right. the mammies used to nurse yeah. their children. They would sleep right. with our women right. and have children with them. But the whites in the north don't care how high you go. They just don't want you to get close. Well, sure. So how do you reconcile yeah. that as a white person with geography, the Mason-Dixon line separating Well, I think, uh, but, you know, and I have to say, Janet, in growing up in the south, having a, a northern father and a, and a mountain mother, but I have to say in watching the changes here, Mm -hmm. uh, to, such as in Winston-Salem and so forth, and that's not to glo gloss over, mm -hmm. you know, things, still problems between people. But, you you know, we, we live together. We relate to mm -hmm. each other. And, you know, it's a, it's a, that's, you're asking... Why didn't very, we before? Yeah. If yeah. we're relating now, why yeah. didn't we before? Well, I think um, 
You know, it's, gosh, here in Winston-Salem, for example, you would have East Winston, mm -hmm. where all the black people lived. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, when I went to high school, which was James A. Gray High School, it was uh, separated, it was segregated. Mm -hmm. But we heard of a fellow by the name of Earl the Pearl Monroe, mm -hmm. who was an outstanding basketball player mm -hmm. over at Winston-Salem State. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We wanted to go see him play. So you, so you so they liked us for amusement, yes. but not no, no, for no. no it, it was because of the expertise and his ability to perform, and, and that's mm -hmm. what they. And so when you what if what yeah. if what if he was to want to marry one of their daughters? Well, at that time that would have been would have been out of the question. But you know we went through a lot of uh, social consciousness. You know, and one of the great movies was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm -hmm. and you remember mm -hmm. that. I do. So, Bill's a good it, friend of Sidney Poitier. See, so, so yeah, but th there's a, It's an interesting. It, it, it's an interesting. If if you had you know, to answer the question, who's come a long way? Because as a black person, I hear white people say, "Black people have come a long way." And I say it another way. It is white people who've come along. Oh, I would. Oh, absolutely. So, what yeah, has enabled yeah. them to come that distance? Yeah. Well, I think uh, it, it, the relationships and people coming. For example, when you say South, what is the South now? Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Atlanta and you go down, I went down to an uh, audition for the Black Entertainment Network. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's housed in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and so the the I think. It, good part of it is people, Mark Twain said it's impossible to remain prejudiced and to travel. Oh, so I would say that that's one aspect in the mm -hmm. fact that I'm sitting here today talking with mm -hmm. you fellas. So I think it's the, the rubbing, uh, the, the, you know, coming together physically as well as that. But you know, um, yeah, these, but you bring up issues that are very, very getting back into play, tonight's play is mm -hmm. Anne, and, and Emmett. Emmett, and that's based on Anne Frank and Emmett Till, and most of us know know their stories. And both this, were murdered by hate. They, exactly, and this is we're talking today with uh, Janet Cohen and William Cohen on Poets and Writers today. So keep listening out there. Now I'm going to switch back to William <laughs> Cohen and talk a little bit about poetry. You're not going to be interviewed yes. by me. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about your poetry. How did you come to start writing poetry? I had an English professor uh, when I was in college, and I was playing basketball at the time, the captain of the basketball team, and uh, he assigned a sonnet for all of us to write. I had never heard of a sonnet uh, and had never read one to my knowledge at that point. And uh, he said, you will uh, write, I, I went to him, I said, "You, uh, professor, I can't possibly write this, uh, this assignment. Um, the, as you know, the captain of the basketball team, and we're traveling, and I won't have time. He said, you write this, uh, or you'll fail, fail the course. And so I uh, spent three weeks uh, in high anxiety. I finally came across an article I had read about the mating instinct um, between animals um, based on the season. And so I sat down, and I wrote my first sonnet, uh, which I will recite for you today. Please do, okay. please. Winter freezes, summer blood to ice, and it chills the passions that await the spring. The lover suffers season's sacrifice at altars bleak with crystal covering. Now what heart can hold a love in winter's time when even nature slacks her passion pace, when minor creatures flee the upper clime for warmer realms of borrowed, burrowed space? But spring has courage to oppose the cold and passes on to those in love the same. 
the sound of love and life take hold of human ears that close their winter's name. Ah, but is it fair to unimpassioned reason to say that love depends upon a season? That was my first poem. Well, and you've written many more since well, then, Well, I have right? another favorite, and they're based on seasons because I come from New England, and um, autumn just touches you in a way that no other day does. The trees surrender their green for gold at the first touch of cold, and they cry quietly in color at the betrayal of the sun. The wind paints flesh the hue of apple skins while spirits soar in concrete stadiums, and winter's scout cuts the throats of perennials and muffles the pain in ice. Strange how we rejoice at all the red knowing their lives are nearly dead, while our children play in paper graves dug by fallen leaves. Stranger still, this custom of a family ride to the countryside, pointing at the splendor of it all. That's beautiful, and wow, Robert Frost comes to mind. Well, you know, he, I, you know, I don't mean favorites. to drop that in, but he is actually one of my favorite poets, and they've heard me on Poets and Writers around the uh, valley and mountains here quote him. Well, that is, gosh, that is just, that is, it, folks, you just heard William Cohen, <laughs> the former Secretary of Defense, quoting some of his original poetry. And we'll go back to 1959. And that was all because you had this English professor who inspired you. He didn't right. threaten you because some of my listeners say they had an English teacher or professor who didn't like their poetry. You know how that goes. I had a couple of them like that. Okay, William Cohen, now back to Janet. A little bit more about your play tonight, and um, where, did, where, where did you show it up at the Supreme Court? Uh, it was uh, at the Supreme Court, hosted by Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, the foundation, the nonprofit that hosted it was the National Association of Women Judges. We were also performing at uh, the New York Police Academy, NYPD Police Academy, uh, we also were to have been at the Holocaust Museum, and sadly, the, a hater came in and, and uh, hurt somebody. Um, we were just at the newest museum on the Mall in Washington, D.C. It's a National Museum of African American History and Culture. And the irony is that we appeared there on Emmett Till's 76th birthday. Okay. And we're just delighted to be here at this festival. Being among, you know, I live in an integrated society, yeah. and I'm grateful that we can choose to live in an integrated society. And despite the fact that Washington, D.C. is 70% African-American, in the circles I travel in, I rarely ever see my own people. For sure. But here is like a family reunion, a celebration, and it's just wonderful to be here. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on the show today, and that's uh, Janet Cohen and William Cohen that you've been listening to, and this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me, do not be afraid to stay or steal away, I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play.
nothing can harm. 